Lord, we praise your holy name. Thank you that you are the God who loves us, who is steadfast, and you've won us with your love, Lord. Most of all, as it's been demonstrated through Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son. It's because of him that our broken lives can be healed, our selfish lives can be made to be transformed, Lord, and that we were who were once lost are now found and can be brought into this beautiful relationship with you. I thank you for your great and deep love for us. It is the foundation of our lives. And I thank you that you made it so simple to enter into this relationship with you, to put our trust and our hope in you, and to know that that trust will not be shaken, not because, because it's not us who holds this relationship together, but you. Lord, we thank you, God, that the entire story of history has been how you have loved us fully and more completely than we could possibly imagine. And yet we chose in our own selfishness, in our own desire to have our own way to separate ourselves from you, to sin. And Lord, that you've chosen not to, in light of that, turn your back on us, but to continue to reach out towards us, arms extended, invitation always open. And God, to know that through Christ we've been brought back. And Lord, we just thank you for this precious and beautiful relationship we have with you. Pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and draw us into your presence, God. And uh, Lord, that we'd be filled with you today and in this time. Lord, I thank you that your desire to speak to us is greater than our desire to hear and listen. And uh, Lord, I just pray that whatever you need to do to move our hearts today, to help us walk out of here as changed women and men, God, more and more like you, I pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Welcome to Awaken on a beautiful fall morning. Gosh, I live for days like this. It's good. And uh, it seems only fitting that on a beautiful like this, we'd be talking about love, which is the focus of the series that we're in the midst of that we've entitled Love Works. And what is really interesting and fascinating about walking through a series about love is that every single person in here would say, you know what, I know what love is. I have some idea of what looks like, feels like, and is, and yet if we were to kind of pull you in one by one into a room, the things that you would share to describe love would all be different. And that is what makes love so fascinating, right? The more spiritual ones in this room would probably say, well, God is love. But even that, if I ask you, what does that mean? A number of us would be hard-pressed to be able to define what that means and what that looks like. And so what is the essence of love? Like, if you were to boil it down, what are the essential qualities of love? And that is what we're going to take the time to tackle this morning. And to put that in context, we're going to start with going through what we've already covered up until this point. So two weeks ago, we shared on the idea of how love begins with God. God's the one who thought it up. God is the one who's initiated this love relationship. And God is the one who's created us to respond to him in love. And he's the only reason why we have any framework at all for what love means. Then last week, we talked about the idea of, well, 
I can accept that. I can accept that God is love and that God loves me. But what if I can't fully experience that? Because there are times in my life when, quite honestly, I feel unlovable. And I realize that there's something in my life, something maybe even ugly in my life, that keeps me from wanting to or being able to experience the type of love relationship God says that he has for me. What happens then? And we talked about ways that we can look at and understand and then even uh, what to do with this idea of ugliness in our lives. And then this week, as I shared earlier, this week is going to be the idea of, of our focus is going to be on the essence of love, right? What does love mean? What is its essential nature? And which, believe it or not, is not an easy question to answer. If you go online and you start just scrambling for thoughts on what is the essence of love, what you're going to find are a wide variety of really interesting ideas. There's one who said that uh, the essence of love is freedom, right? To be able to be free to share my life with another person or other people, uh, which is a really cool answer. Someone else shared that, you know what, the essence of love is like a dog. You know, and if you've got a dog, you totally understand because they get love and they show, they can't help but show love. And I'm like, we have a dog and I get that picture too. There are others who say that uh, the essence of love is trust or it's respect or it's unselfishness or it's staying at someone's side no matter what. So we can go on and on, right? There's a lot of different ideas and they all kind of, they're not like all totally different. It's just a bunch of different ideas trying to capture this idea of what love is at its core. And they're all good answers. They're hard to argue against, but I'm just saying, and I think what's interesting in the observation I want to make this morning is the idea that, it, and that this idea of love, which is so, uh, so common and so ubiquitous, right? That it seems like everyone has an idea about love. Everyone has this understanding about love, and yet we don't always share a common understanding of what it is, of what it looks like, what it is to express it, and what it is to receive it. Even in my own family, love can be expressed very differently. Uh, my wife is um, amazing. She is, for, for her and I, her love for me is outrageously expressive. Uh, big hugs, big kisses, big declarations. Uh, she puts me on a pedestal, and I love it, right? My kids, on the other hand, when we talk about how expressive love I have for them, so they all express love a little bit differently, but it's all along the lines of, you know, hey, Dad. You know, that's kind of what, or even for one of the kids, you know, just kind of, all right, reluctant. But that's better than what I get from my parents. So I go to my parents, and their hugs are still kind of stiff, you know, and, and they just, they are not huggers. They're not intimate in that way. But I will tell you this, every single time I spend time with my parents, they send me on my way with a meal, a little snack, a little something. Hey, I was thinking about you, and I decided to pick this up. Go ahead and take it with you. A magazine or something that they just want a bottle of water they want me to take with them, you know, and that's kind of how my parents show love, which is still better than my brother. So my brother, I can't remember a time when he's ever said, I love you to me. Uh, never. I can't remember a single time when he said that, even when I say it to him, it's, it's, and that still feels weird. But I do remember a number of years ago, we were on vacation together and we were at this vacation home. It was just the two of us for some reason sitting there watching TV. I don't even know what we're watching. I don't know what brought it up, but all of a sudden he turns to me and he's like, hey, Frank, just want to let you know that uh, if you ever die and someone was the cause of it, I'll take care of it. 
Thanks, Perry. I appreciate that. And I think that was easier for him to say than to say, Frank, I love you. But that was what he meant, right? So even with in my own family, we have different ways of being able to express love. So that's the idea, right? Essence of love. And here's what's interesting, too, that if you go and you look up research, right, there's not a lot of research on what the essence of love is. Because it's just hard to define. You can't put a research project around it. You can look at dating. There's a lot of research on dating. There's a lot of research on marriage. There's a lot of research on what, um, on what uh, the brain, there's even brain and hormone studies on how, if you're in love, how it looks versus if you're not in love, how it looks. There's a number of different research studies on how people are different when they're in love versus how they're different when they're not in love. But the reality is, when we talk about this idea of love, artists do a better job of capturing what love is than researchers do, right? And writers and poets do a better job than scientists. And God does an even better job than all of them. So two weeks ago, we shared that love begins with God and that even better, the Bible teaches that not only is God the author of love, God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, says this, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Right? So it says both right here. It says God, love comes from God, and it is God. But then it says something really interesting in the middle. It basically says that if you love, then you're a child of God and you know God. But if you don't love, you don't know him. And from us, when we read that on the outside, we're like, well, then everyone is a child of God, right? Because we all know love in some way, shape, or form. It's like, no, that's not exactly what God is saying here. The world has mutilated this word love. Uh, and we get that, right? Because we, we know that when we say we love pizza, that's not the same thing as saying God's love for us is so great that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on our behalf. We totally understand we're using the same word, but they don't mean anywhere near the same thing. And so what God is saying in this passage is like, look, I am love. And therefore, the definition of love, if we're going to have any definition at all of what love is, is always going to be consistent with who I am my nature and my character. And if it is not, then it's not really love. And that's the type of love God is talking about. The essence of love must be consistent with the character and nature of God. And what that means practically for us is if someone says, I love you, but when they use that word love, it includes putting you down, it includes hitting you, it includes harming you in some way, shape, or form, you understand they might be using the word love, but that's not actual love because that is not consistent with the character and nature of God. Is that pretty clear to all of us here? That the, the, in the same way that, you know, quesadillas are not pizzas, right? There's a specific definition for what pizza is. Quinoa burgers, they're not really burgers, you know? And so sometimes when people use this word love, the world has taken this world and or taken this word and just made it mean a whole bunch of things that God says, I never meant for it to mean. And so if we're to go back to what love means, I'm going to say this, is, and you know, we're going to get into this whole what love, the essence of love is, but I'll tell you this first. If the way it is expressed is not consistent with the nature and heart of God, then it is not love, no matter what that person says or is doing with that word. So, 
It's uh, because of that, I think this is the reason why I think it's important for us to spend time this morning talking about the essence of love. Part of, uh, what is it, we heard this, uh, you guys have heard the analogy that when they, um, when, uh, is it Internal Revenue Service, IRS? When they train, uh, no, it's uh, FBI, forgeries, right? When they train um, uh, the Department of Treasury to identify, uh, to be able to tell the difference between a real dollar bill and a counterfeit. What they don't do in their training is show you all the different counterfeit bill possibilities out there and teach you to be able to tell the difference. They just show you the real thing and help you understand the real thing so well and so intimately that you'll never be fooled by a counterfeit, right? You'll always be able to tell the difference because you know what the real thing looks like, feels like. And I think this is what we want to do this morning is talk about the idea, the, what the essence of love is in such a way so that we can say, okay, anything that doesn't fit this, then I know can't be love. And the way we're going to do that is going to be interesting because we're not going to use some definition. Because honestly, what definition in there could really capture what love is? So instead, what we're going to do uh, is tell a picture or paint a picture, right? To tell a story to help us and uh, and help us not define the essence of love necessarily as much as conceptualize it. And there are a number of stories in the Bible that do this well. The best one, obviously, is, you know, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, that's, that's proof positive of God's love towards us. But I think when we talk about this idea of the essence of love and what that means, is like we understand love begins with God, but what does it mean for us and how we express love, in particular, to one another? And there's a story in the book of Mark chapter 14 that's really beautiful that I want to tell you all that I hope gives you a framework that says, okay, if I get the heart of this story, then I understand the essence of love. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1, this is how the story begins. It says, it was now two days before Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. So context, this is two days before the Passover. Uh, So uh, two days before Jesus is going to be crucified and killed. So this is on a Wednesday. And Friday is the day of the Passover. Friday is what Good Friday is what we call it today because I don't know why they call that Good Friday the day Jesus crucified, but that's, that's what it is, right? So it's two days before that event. And it is a dark time for Jesus. It's a dark time in his ministry, both literally and figuratively. So the religious leaders are frustrated with him, angered at him, uh, feel like that he is leading people astray and they're plotting to kill him. But they're saying not during the Passover itself because we don't want to make a big deal about it. We don't want to create controversy. and We don't want to get into a fight. But we want him removed. So Jesus, on the other hand, is spending the evening, one of the few evenings that he has remaining, uh, with his disciples, with his closest friends. And verse 3 shares what happens in that evening that he is spending with his closest friends. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over 
Esther's head. So Bethany is about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. That's where they're going for the Passover. They're going to the city of Jerusalem. They're a mile and a half out, and they decide this evening to make a stop, right? And they're stopping at the home of a man named Simon, who was previously a leper. And as we talked about last week, when we talked about the idea of ugly, right? Lepers were outcasts. Not only did they have this disease that kept people away, they themselves isolated themselves from society. And what Jesus did when he healed lepers is he not only healed their disease, he brought them back into society. He brought them back into, um, into community. And I don't think there's any greater way to demonstrate that than the fact that Jesus chooses on this night to spend the evening with him, even though in the city of Bethany he had some other really good friends who lived there. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha also lived in the city of Bethany. So they're coming together. They're two days away from Jesus' crucifixion, but because the disciples are kind of thick and because maybe Jesus wasn't specific enough, Jesus is the only one in the room who knows that's what's going to happen. We know because we're looking back at it, but at the time, only Jesus really understood what was going to happen two days from now, understanding the urgency and the darkness of the time. But for the disciples, they're just doing what they do, what friends do when good friends get together. They're sharing a meal, they're spending some time laughing, joking, and just enjoying each other's company over a meal. And then this woman comes into the room, interrupting their time, interrupting their fellowship, and she approaches Jesus. She takes out this small alabaster jar of expensive perfume, breaks the seal, and pours it out over his head. So it is running down his hair, running down his cheeks, through his clothes, and dripping onto the floor. And for the woman, this was intended to be an act of love. It was designed to be an act of worship. But that's not what the disciples see. Verses 4 and 5. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor, so they scolded her harshly. And I know that might seem like uh, a bit of a harsh response. Here's a woman who's trying to be generous, who's trying to be loving, and the disciples, there are a few of them around the table saying, what a waste that was. But what we don't understand today that the disciples understood in their time is that under the Jewish law, right, there's a command to not be wasteful. And even in particular, a command that even during times of celebration to not be wasteful, right? And there are numerous examples. One of the examples is when a guest was brought into a Jewish home, you would wash their feet, and it was totally appropriate to put a couple drops of perfume into the water that their feet were being washed in, but not to pour the entire jar, right? That would be wasteful. And so what, uh, this, what these disciples are seeing this woman do is here's a bottle of perfume that's worth a year's wages. So what would that be in our setting? That would be 40, 60, $80,000 worth of perfume. Can you imagine? Poured over the head of Jesus in a single moment, right? And that to them was wasteful. In their minds, you could have done the same thing without going to such an extravagant degree. Plus, especially when you consider that it was incredibly unusual for any woman to have something that had that much value. So unusual, in fact, that a number of scholars surmise, surmise, imagine, 
postulate, hypothesize, anyway, that this wasn't actually hers. It was a family heirloom that was passed down to her and not something that she bought somewhere, which only makes it all the more valuable. What the disciples see is what they're confused by is wasted perfume, wasted um, money, and missed opportunities. And this woman, right, let's not forget about her. She has interrupted this time, done what most would consider to be inappropriate, and given up her wealth, her treasure, and likely her most priceless possession for what? And then after doing so, she doesn't speak up, she doesn't defend herself. Instead, she is hoping that Jesus understands what she has done, even if no one else in the room does. And Jesus replies, verse 6, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You'll always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. Jesus rebukes his friends because they don't see what Jesus sees. Jesus doesn't see wasted perfume. Jesus doesn't see wasted money. And Jesus doesn't see missed opportunities, right? He defends her. He reminds his disciples that there's always going to be poor people to help. There will always be good causes. And there will always be more opportunities out there for you to show your generosity. But, and don't miss this. What he's also implying and what he's also pointing out is there is also an opportunity right here, right now, and everyone in this room has missed it except this young woman with the alabaster jar. She is the only one who has seen it, and she is the only one who has seized it. In two days, Jesus is going to be crucified and killed. When respectable Jewish men die... Their, um, their family and people who care for them and love them would put perfume to prepare their bodies for burial. No one would do that for a criminal, a common criminal. It just wasn't necessarily done. I don't know how, right? But somehow this woman knows that the death of Jesus is coming soon. And he has prophesied over his own death. He's talked about it. Just no one took him literally. She somehow has. She somehow discerned this, and she knows it's coming soon. She chooses to seize the moment, and she treats Jesus not like a common criminal. She treats Jesus not even like a respectable Jewish man. Instead, she anoints Jesus like a king because she recognizes that he is one. And the way you anoint kings is with abundance and riches. And that is what she has surrendered because that's who she sees him as being. She chose to make the most of the moment, and she gave Jesus everything she had. She gave Jesus the best that she had. And I want you to remember this. I don't want you to miss this, right? Because I think too many times we do this. We miss giving our best in a moment because we assume there's always going to be another opportunity. Yeah, I didn't give my best this time, but there's always going to be another opportunity to give my best. And that's just not necessarily given to you. 
not, that shouldn't be a given or an assumption we make. Sometimes we can choose to withhold love because our perspective is there's always going to be another chance to show this person love if I miss this chance. And I think that's wrong thinking as well. And that's certainly not how this woman thought. She recognized an opportunity to show Jesus love, to honor him, and she chose to make the most of it. And for that, she endured ridicule and possible rejection. Jesus continues and closes out with these words in verse 9. I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. I love how the New Testament or the New Living Translation uh, shares this verse, right? That this woman's act of love, that this woman's act of worship will be forever remembered, will be remembered and discussed forever wherever the gospel goes. There's no one else of whom Jesus says this about. And what that is important to note is that there's something here that this woman has done that Jesus said is of such importance and so important that I don't want you to miss, right? It's so important and, and so important to me that you not miss that I'm going to declare that everywhere and every when the gospel goes, this story is going to be told alongside it. That this story should be attached to my story of love for you. And he says that about no one else and nothing else. You know, there's this uh, story of a wealthy American traveler who happened to be going through Southeast Asia. And while he was there, he happened to have a minor injury. And he walks into one of the hospitals in Southeast Asia. And he looks over and he sees this young missionary nurse who is caring for uh, kind of cleaning out the sores of this elderly, sick, uh, dirty man who until recently has been sleeping in a gutter. And as this wealthy man looks over at this young missionary nurse, he tells her, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And this young missionary nurse lifts up her head and she looks over at him and gently but firmly says, I wouldn't either. She's not there because money has compelled her. And that's the difference, right, between what we experience when we experience the love God has for us. Money can't compel loyalty, right, or devotion is maybe a better way to say it. Money can't buy devotion. Money can't buy love. Love has this reckless quality to it that says, I will give it regardless of the cost. So many parts of our lives, we have to be measured, right? We count the cost, the, the ba we balance the consequences of what we're doing to what we do. Love has this quality that says, regardless of cost, I will do, I will give, I will share. And this is the type of love this woman sh shows Jesus. And it is because of that love that Jesus responds to her and says, wherever you go, Right? Wherever the gospel goes, for as long as the gospel will be shared, your story will be a part of it. It's an incredible response to a woman who has done everything she knew how to honor and love Jesus. She has given him all that she has, and it, Jesus tells her it will not 
be forgotten. So I share with you this morning that our goal today was to capture the essence of love. And I also share with you that uh, there's no definition I can give you that's going to capture it. And so instead, what I'm trying to do is paint a picture of it through a story, a story that I didn't make up, but a story that Jesus tells, right? A story that's in the scriptures, but one that has a unique quality to it. And the unique quality is Jesus says this story has something beautiful in it. What I believe is about the quality of love that he says is going to be attached. It's so important that you not miss it, that I'm attaching it to the story, the good news forever. We know love begins with God. We know love is defined by God. And this morning what we've shared is through Christ, we are also capable, for those of us who have God dwelling in us, right, of showing that same type of love to others. But the key, the key to that isn't memorizing a definition, right? It isn't finding the right words, although there are some really good ones we could use. Sacrificial, generous, courageous, reckless, uh, unselfish, pure, unashamed. There are a lot of good words we could bundle into this, right? But none of the words by themselves or even combinations fully capture what is happening here better than the picture does. And I think the key for us to understand what the essence of love is, is to understand the heart of the story of the woman with the alabaster jar. And to realize that maybe this is why Jesus said her story will continue to be told wherever the gospel goes for as long as the gospel is shared. You know, I want to close with a final passage from 1 John, and I want to draw out some thoughts from it. And part of the reason for doing so is I know that even with this, some of you are still going to be, all right, that's really cool. I still want something a bit more practical and hands-on. So we'll go ahead and, and share this passage. It's actually found in 1 John 4. It's just a little bit farther than that passage I shared with you earlier where God said God, that love comes from God and that God is love, right? A few passages uh, further down. Uh, starting in verse 16, it says, God is love. This is where we left off earlier. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. That's part of what love entails, is that we live like Jesus. Such love has no fear because perfect love casts out all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loves us first. If someone says, I love God but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. There's a lot of wisdom in this passage. We could spend weeks and weeks on this passage, maybe more. But there are three ideas I want to make sure that we walk out of here not missing, right? And the first one is this. Loving and growing in relationship with God allows our love to become more perfect as well. I don't want you to miss that. It's important to realize that because there's some of us in this room that's like, all right, I want to love better. I want to love like Christ has called me to love. But the reality is I don't. And this, what's comforting about this verse is it's saying it's okay. Because this is an area that you can grow in. 
if you want to grow in it, here's where it begins. Grow your relationship with God. Get close to Jesus. Keep loving. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to get better at it. The second idea I don't want us to miss is that love and fear are incompatible. They don't work together. Love and fear are incompatible. It's like oil and water, right? They just don't mix well together. So if you're a person who wrestles with a lot of fear, and you also realize that, yeah, I have a trouble, I have a problem with love as well, there should be no surprise here. Because what God tells us is that you're, if you're a fearful person, then love is going to be difficult. They just don't mix well together. And my hope for you is to say, if that is where I am stuck, and if I'm going to be honest, I admit that I am a person that has a lot of fears, then take the time to identify and then uproot that fear. And if for you it's like, I don't know what that looks like, we shared a lot about it last week when we talked about the idea of ugly. Take the time. If you didn't hear it, go ahead and review that one. I don't refer to my own sermons very often, but I'll say that one was, has some things good in it. And, you know, if after that you're like, I'm still a bit at a loss, then come talk to me. I'd be happy to guide you through it, right? But here's one of the cool things that God says in here is, yes, they're incompatible, but I'll tell you what else that means. It means that if you grow in love, fear gets pushed out. That's what it means when it says perfect love casts out fear. In the same way that fear can push out love, learning and growing in love reverses it and pushes out fear. Last thing I want to share is loving the church is where loving is most important. I'm going to share what I mean by that before you kind of like, well, you're a pastor. You're supposed to say stuff like that. When I say church, I mean everyone who is a part of God's family, right? Not just awaken. And here's why it's important, especially in your local church, especially as part of awaken, is what God says is this is the best place to practice loving, to practice love, to learn how to become a more loving person. Because if you're unable to love the people you see on a regular basis, then how can you claim to love God whom you cannot see? This is your opportunity to practice. And that's why as a church we push so hard to have our saints be a part of a home group or to be a part of a ministry. where uh, So in a home group context, you've got people in a smaller group where you get to know them and get to know about their lives and learn love in the midst of closeness. In ministries, we have opportunities to learn to love people that are like-minded and also like-gifted. And then we have opportunities for evangelism. As, as uh, Tim and, and uh, Richard shared earlier, we do pray for Jaxes on a once-a-month basis. We have homeless ministry to know that the Awakening Crew goes out on Fridays, right? An opportunity to not only demonstrate love, but to be around people who are learning to be more loving, right? Um, we have Seamark uh, Ministries, what we did yesterday, right? Being able to, to care for the saints at Seamark. There is a number of different opportunities. And what we do as a church is not doing, engaging in these activities so we stay busy and to keep you occupied. What we're trying to do is say these are different contexts and opportunities for you to experience love, to share love, to grow in love. Because that's how we become more like Christ. Love begins with God. God is the one who defines what love is. And through Christ, God has made us capable of demonstrating God-like love to others. We're not only capable of love, we're commanded to be 
and it's when we discover how to translate God's perfect love into our imperfect lives that the effect of love gladdens even the heart of God. So it's only a few days after this Wednesday night uh, at Simon's house that Jesus is arrested. Uh, He's taken uh, before Pontius Pilate. And there Pontius Pilate, through his cowardice, sentences Jesus to die. So from there, Jesus is taken from the court and given a cross. And he's forced to carry that cross uh, to a place, the hill of the skull called Golgotha. And it is there um, that Jesus is crucified on the cross. And it's in these moments of incredible torment, uh, spiritually separated from God, emotionally betrayed and isolated from his friends, physically beaten, tortured, and tormented. And it is in the midst of this torment and pain, it's in the midst of all the blood, sweat, tears, and decay that Jesus detects this faint sense of perfume still entangled in his hair. It's still embedded in his beard. It's still drenched in his skin. A uh, pure and refreshing reminder that his sacrifice has not been in vain, that he has been loved. Jesus will breathe his final breath of perfume in his nose as an eternal reminder that this woman's act of love, this woman's act of courage, this woman's act of faith, and this woman's act of worship has pleased God and will never be forgotten by God. And our acts of love, right, our expressions of love have the ability to do the same. We pray it will. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you, God, for your presence and being able to spend some time dwelling on what it might be like to experience the essence of love and to come to this interesting limit that we have, the limitation of words, to realize that there aren't specific words that capture the entirety of what your love is like. And yet what you've done, and because of that, what you've done is you've painted pictures for us to be able to see and in grasping them, perhaps grasp the essence of who you are. And God, I pray that this would be what we experience from this time, that in our pursuit to understand the essence of love, what we are also discovering is the essence of who you are as well, God. Because this is what you tell us, that God is And if we understand the essence of love, then by default, what it means is we understand the essence of who you are as well. And that's amazing. And I pray that we would pursue it. And to realize that it's not an answer we'll grasp and just be able to, say, park it in our minds for the rest of our lives. But it's going to be a journey we continuously pursue and continuously discover more about day after day, moment by moment, as we love the way you've called us to love. Lord, we thank you so much. I thank you for for these saints for my friends, for my brothers and sisters, Lord. And I just pray that you would continue to fill us, speak to us, and move us. 